Okay, I'm going to pray, and then we can uh, jump into this session. So let's pray. Lord, thank you for this morning and for these men. Thank you again just for this weekend that we can gather uh, and have some time together. Um, just think of how special it is that we can take um, just a couple hours out of our busy lives to spend time fellowshipping with our brothers, um, that we can uh, just rekindle some of our relationships, just spend time together to build those deeper bonds. And Lord, I pray as we get to look at forgiveness, um, at this at this topic that we all, it all um, you know, hits us and affects us differently, Lord, I pray that um, you would use this time, that you would use these discussions, that you'd use these sessions to um, strengthen us as a church, to strengthen us as men, to strengthen us as, um, as friends and as husbands and as fathers. Lord, just uh, create in us a community that um, is known for its love, its, for its reconciliation, for its forgiveness. I just be with us now. Give me clarity of, of thought and, and speech, um, and uh, just give us a great rest of the day. In your name, amen. Okay, session two. This is titled The Heart of Forgiveness. Just to do some recap, we finished our last session by looking at the differing views of grace that are offered uh, with forgiveness. We looked at cheap grace, which is looking at only, um, you know, looking at just kind of things being reconciled back together. This is this would be kind of this expectation of just being, um, I don't know, what, what, what's, the, what's the best word, just kind of duct tape back together. Then there's a little grace, which is looking at, I'll give you forgiveness once you've earned the forgiveness, which is not uh, grace at all. That's um, justice. Uh, and then there's no grace, where it's, I'm not going to forgive you at all. It is only justice. But then we looked at costly grace. And we identified that the grace that we offer people, the forgiveness that we have, is a costly grace. Um, I think we could all agree that the Bible commands us to forgive. We saw that from Matthew 6. We saw that from Matthew 18. And, but I'll go back to where I started. I understand that the worst way that I can um, encourage you to forgive is simply by going through the stop it mentality of just looking at you and saying, well, just forgive already. Uh, instead, I want to um, again, in this session, as I did last session, um, to encourage your hearts to have this, again, the expulsive power of forgiveness to give you an even greater desire that's going to push out um, the, let's be real, the um, uh, at, at times the appealing desire to not forgive. And so I, I do want to quote from the Thomas Chalmers sermon, again, as we're looking at the greater love that will usher in this desire to forgive. It says this, the love of the world cannot expunge, cannot be expunged by a mere demonstration of the world's worthlessness. So again, to put it in this context, what's going to cause us to forgive is not me just sitting down saying, you know what, it's miserable for you to harbor resentment and grudges, but it may be, going back to this quote, but it may be supplanted by a love of that which is more worthy than itself. And so this morning, what I do want to do in this session is to remind you of the very heart of forgiveness, where it comes from, so that Again, uh, we, the, the, the lack of forgiveness can be uh, supplanted by a love that is more worthy than itself. Um, a couple years ago, I was, I was reading this book, and the book was called Low Anthropology. And it gave me some language that really kind of helped me understand the type of person that I liked to hang out with. I would often say before reading this book that the, the people that I enjoyed spending time with, the people that I, sell, I felt safest with, the people that, 
that I could, you know, truly be myself with were those people who were broken. And what I meant by that is somebody who has gone, gone through a struggling moment and recognized that they um, weren't perfect. And I don't really like the perfectionist. If any of you guys are like that, I love you still. But I, it's, I struggle with that whole perfectionist thing. I liked hanging out with people that understood of like, they're a little broken. But in reading the Low Anthropology book, it gave me better language than saying I like broken people because that doesn't really go over well. You can't really say like that to, um, and, you know, and really seem loving. Low Anthropology is looking at the low view of man. Low Anthropology is compared to high anthropology. Anthropology is that technical term for looking at man. So it gave this language of the low view of man. I like people who understand the low view of man. I like people who understand the fact that they don't think too highly of themselves. They recognize who they are. They recognize that they are sinners saved by grace, if you look at it in the Christian sense. But then even in the non-Christian sense, I've interacted with people like my aunt and uncle. I've used them as, as an illustration often. They're not believers, but they're some of the nicest people on earth. I mean, they're, again, not believers, so just having this view doesn't save you. But they recognize something about themselves. And what they recognize is they're not special, that they have struggles, that they need to give grace because they have been given grace. Well, in this community of reconciliation, in this community of forgiveness, one of the things that we need to recognize is the fact that we have been forgiven. That's what compels us to forgive. That's what we saw last night. The thing that the unforgiving servant didn't realize was that was how much he had in fact been forgiven. So some of this session and some of the things that we need to uh, you know uh, hold in our hearts constantly is how low we truly are, how forgiven we truly are, how sinful we truly are, how much has been forgiven in us. And when we forget that, when we go from a low anthropology to a high anthropology, when we, when we walk away from the, the, the mercy and grace that has been given and we start to be puffed up with, look how great I am, it's easy for us then not to offer the forgiveness that God commands us. So this session in the heart of forgiveness, I'm going to go over some basic things, some things that we obviously celebrate all the time at Community, but I'm going to go over them to remind us again of this is the type of people that we are. We are a forgiven people. Now, there was a tension that I brought up at the end of, of, of our last session and one that I want to unpack because this tension at times can seem that it's an unresolvable tension. And the tension is this, that forgiveness, this is how I kind of define things at the end of the evening. Forgiveness comes by fully acknowledging the weight of an offense, pursues justice for the victim, and then declares mercy upon the perpetrator. And that seems like to be a tension because how in the world can you fully acknowledge something, pursue the justice of something, and at the same time declare mercy? Because it seems like it's an unresolvable tension to have justice and mercy at the same time. Like it would seem that those things are at odds because even in my description of, of cheap grace, little grace, no grace, what did I say? The no grace is where you're only pursuing justice, you're not pursuing forgiveness. But here's what we can see, this tension between grace and mercy, is clearly seen in God. That he's always been holding on to this tension from the very beginning. And so it's a tension that I think we have to recognize, but it's a tension that we're, what we're going to see, 
and I'm, I know that you guys could preach the sermon, so this is going to be a, me preaching to the choir, and I'm excited about this. This is a tension that we can see is resolved only in Christ. But we first see this tension as God is declared as somebody who is justice and merciful. We can see this in Exodus. And this is like the first, not the one of the first descriptions of God. This comes from Moses. This is in Exodus 34. Moses wanted to see God. He wanted to, to experience Him. He'd been so close to God. He's like, I just want to see your face. He wanted to have... A, more, a, a deeper and, and a more intimate relationship with God. So what did he ask? God, I want to see your face. And God, in his mercy, went, that's not going to go well with you. You're a sinner, but you can see my backside. So he took him up on the mountain. And you guys know the story. We preached through it in, in, in Exodus. He, he tucks him in the cleft of the rock and covers him from his glory. He walks before him. And when Moses comes out of that, this is the description that he has of God. This is who he sees God to be. This is Exodus 34, 6-7. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and the transgressions of sin. A God of mercy. If you were to describe all that, a God of mercy. But, who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. I mean, this text highlights just the principles of who God is from the very beginning. Number one, he is gracious and slow to anger. He is offering mercy, but he demands justice. Not desires justice, not hopes for justice, demands justice. It must be paid. The offense must be taken care of. And we see this tension, and this tension can seem that it's like, well, what are we going to do with that? Clearly then, how can God offer forgiveness? He is a God of mercy, but he has to have. He demands justice. So what's going to happen here? This is what Keller says, again, a quote from that book. There's an apparent tension between God's holiness and his love, between the necessity that sin must be punished and the desire for sinners to be delivered, that's because the basis for our forgiveness that God appoints, achieves, and offers us, it is the one that equally honors justice and mercy. So this tension between God's holiness and love, the one who wants to punish sinners and the one who wants to free sinners, you, you, can, you, can, you ask the question, okay, so how, how does God do that? And that's what I want to remind us of as we walk forward. So where we're going is how is the debt, how is the justice? absorbed. Again, to use that language from last night. He exposes that sin. But how is that sin acknowledged? How is that fence acknowledged? How is that debt absorbed? Because to forgive someone means that you absorb their debt. Forgiveness, again, if I can quote from last night, is a form of voluntary suffering. In forgiving rather than retaliating, you make the choice to bear the cost. So how does God demand that justice be satisfied and yet still fulfill mercy. Well, we know this to be Christ. Larry, thank you for coffee. I told you I would take like two sips of it because I can't preach with coffee in my hand, unfortunately. You know, in some respects, this question of how can God demand justice and offer mercy is the first theological question that's answered in the Bible. Like that tension, always there. Tension that we can see even in Genesis 3. And all of the systems, hear this, all of the systems, and all of the images in the Old Testament and New are established 
to provide forgiveness. All of them. That tension was there from the beginning and all of the systems, all of the images, all of the ideas provided in the Old Testament were there to provide forgiveness. One commentator says this, at the heart of all of the Old Testament worship then is forgiveness and without it there is no relationship to God at all. But what is our basis for forgiveness of God? Well, it's substitution. Substitution is the basis for all forgiveness, first and primarily in the forgiveness that we have with God. But even think about the forgiveness that we have with each other. Substitution is still there, right? What is forgiveness? Us bearing the cost of another person's sin. Us not requiring that to be paid back. The offense happened, but who's going to bear the offense? In forgiveness, we say, I'll bear that offense and not retaliate you uh, towards you. I'll bear that offense and not make you earn it and, 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 and seek justice here. I'll bear that offense. So substitution is the basis for our forgiveness in God. And then from that foundation, we also understand that sub- substitution is the basis for all forgiveness. Genesis 3. Just think about this. Adam and Eve's guilt and shame were covered by somebody else, something else, when their eyes were open to who they were. We're going to look more at this in, in our third session. But when, I, when Adam and Eve's um, eyes were opened to who they were after they took the bite of the apple, I mean, what's their first um, emotion there? They're trying to hide themselves over the guilt and shame of it. It's like, oh my goodness, look what I just did. And what does God do? He kills an animal to cover them, to cover their shame. What did the animal do? Nothing. I mean, imagine that. That God looked at an animal who was minding his own business, eating what he should have eaten and not what he should not have eaten. And God kills the animal, his creature that he made on whatever day, that 24-hour day, that goes back to our conversation out on the porch. And that animal had to die because of the guilt and shame of Adam and Eve. But God has always used these substitutes to cover that guilt and shame. Turn to Exodus 12. I'm going to, you know, we're, again, we're just going to be, we're just going to remind ourselves of how, how the Lord has used substitutes of the, of, in order to, to cover our guilt and shame and, and how we are a people that can look at the only hope we have is because of these substitutes. Exodus 12 is looking at the Passover lamb. And it, it, it struck me as, a, as I'm looking at this as, Here's this scene. It's the 10th plague is coming down. God is saying that I am going to, that my spirit is going to hover over all of Egypt and the firstborn from any household that does not have the blood of a lamb on the doorposts and, and on the lentils is going to die. Now that in itself is scary because God is a God of justice and his sin against, and his anger against sin has to be satisfied. So he's going, okay, a death has to occur. But he goes to Moses and he says this in Exodus 12, 21. Then Moses called all the elders of Israel and said to them, Go and select lambs for yourself according to your clan and kill the Passover lamb. And take a bunch of hyssop and dip it in the blood that is in the basin and touch the lentil, the top, and the two door posts with the blood that is in the basin. None of you shall go out of the door of his house until morning. For the Lord will pass 
through to strike the Egyptians. And when he sees the blood on the lentil and the two on the two doorposts, the Lord will pass over the door and will not allow the destroyer to enter your house and to strike you. You shall observe this right as a statute for you and for your sons forever. And when you come to the land that, that the Lord will give you, as I have promised you, you shall keep this service. Imagine the firstborn on that night. I'm the firstborn son. I'm the only son. I get the firstborn, lastborn, middleborn son. Imagine the fear. Is this going to work? Because I'm the guy that's going to die if this isn't going to work. Imagine then looking at the lamb. I mean, a lamb is cute and cuddly. It is. Innocent looking. It's amazing how, like, on you know on my social media now I've, I've had this like influx of like people being asked to, to buy farm animals that's like the new thing have, have any of your wives asked you to buy farm farm animals luckily i live in an hoa so chickens aren't allowed or i'll start having see there you go uh-huh. it's the farm animals lambs are one of those farmers i'm like i don't know make make great euros but i don't want them as pets but looking at the lamb what did the lamb do? Nothing. Why, why does the lamb deserve to die? I don't know. But then you kill it. Then you have to drain its blood. We're a bunch of weak Westerners. We don't like to do that sort of thing. You put it in a basin and put that blood on a doorpost. And the firstborn is going, okay, God's anger, justice has to be satisfied, has to be avenged, has to be paid for. And that firstborn is going, wow, that lamb took my place. God forgave my sins. God passed over in with his anger because of that lamb. The greatest display of the glory of God is seen in, in the substitution in the substitutionary uh, you know methods by which he forgives. And then we can see following that Passover lamb when Jesus comes behold the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. We have the same thought. Jesus didn't do anything deserved as I so now not only all the firstborns, but all people are like, but why is, all your papers are gone. Why is Jesus dying? He's the perfect one. He's done everything correctly. He's not sinned at all. Why is he dying? He doesn't deserve to die. And yet the greatest display of the glory of God is seen in the substitutionary death of Christ upon the cross. And instead of the firstborn kid, son, going, I deserve, that deserved to be my blood. Now we're looking at Jesus and going, that was supposed to be me. My $400 billion debt, that was supposed to be me. But he's on the cross. He's taking on the wrath of God. He's dying instead of me. This is the beauty that's at the center of the gospel. Because the cross is simultaneously the, gl- the glorification of Jesus and the judgment of the world. The cross is the instrument of payment and of pardoning. It's through this one action where God describes to us, this is what the offense, this is what the, 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 the brokenness, this is, this is what your sin requires. This is God thinking of, those, of the four steps of forgiveness. He exposed our sin. He acknowledged our sin. That's what Jesus was doing as he's walking around the earth. Hey, guys, the standard is me. Perfection. Hey, guys, you guys are broken. 
hey guys, you, you, you can't get to me. You are so far gone. And acknowledges it to the point of saying, okay, but that justice must be satisfied. So I'm going to go to the cross. And God and Jesus, Jesus understood the weight that was on his shoulders. We can see that in the agony as he's heading towards the cross and the Garden of Gethsemane, all of that stuff. He understands that agony there, but he's understanding, I've got to do this so that you can live, so that you can be forgiven, so that you can have hope. And when he dies, it is, God's, it is both God's judgment and his mercy being displayed to us. I'm not going to read it, but this is what, you know, this is the beauty of penal substitution. This is why I understand the us understanding what happens on the cross is so important because if we think it's just God demonstrating his love for us, that he's willing to kill his son, and this is how much he loves us, and not understanding the justice and wrath part there, well, then we're not actually going to be able to understand our forgiveness. The debt's been paid. Because you you want to know what forgiveness isn't? When somebody says, I forgive you, but then holds a grudge against you. What, for, what forgiveness isn't is somebody who says, well, I'll forgive you when you've done enough. God doesn't do that because we could never do enough. What isn't forgiveness when God says, okay, you've got to earn your right back and what I'm going to um, require of you is the justice for your sin. That's not forgiveness. So what forgiveness is, is a costly forgiveness. I'm going to, I'm going to offer a substitute and take on the offense onto myself, onto my own son so that this relationship can be reconciled. Here's why I go there. Because this topic of forgiveness, I am unapologetically focusing it more on the horizontal than on the vertical this weekend. We obviously need the vertical, because if we don't have the vertical, then we're never going to do the horizontal well. But it's because of that vertical reality. It's because... We can sit here and I can say we have a low anthropology. We have a low view of man. We, can, we all recognize that we're broken and, and sinners and have been offered that grace that we, as people who have, forgive, who have been forgiven more than we could ever imagine because we don't even understand the depth of our sin and offense, we can then approach those around us, the horizontal, our fellow brothers and sisters in Christ, even approach the world, Non, non-believers, and approach them and offer them a forgiveness that blows their mind because it's not based upon this world. It's based upon, it's not based upon the horizontal. It's based upon the vertical. So where I want to take this discussion is I want to look at two distinctives regarding our forgiveness. And I've heard a couple of these things come up. It, it, it came up in, in our small group. It's, I've even heard some conversations about it this morning. Two distinctives about forgiveness. And this is going to be weighty. This is going to be a struggle. This might poke you in the, eye, in, in the eyes, and I'm okay with that because I think we need it. First distinctive that Jesus offers us regarding forgiveness. He demands it. He demands forgiveness. Turn to Mark chapter 11. If you have a Bible, I'll turn there. Mark chapter 11. Mark is an interesting gospel because it's so shotgun. It doesn't kind of waste any time. So Jesus is talking with his disciples about what faith in God looks like. And he says this in Mark 11, 24 and 25. 
Therefore, I tell you, whatever you ask in prayer, believe that you have received it and it will be yours. And whenever you stand praying, forgive. And if you have anything against anyone, so that your Father also who is in heaven may forgive you of your trespasses. This is very much like we looked at in Matthew 6. So Jesus is very consistent with what he says. But hear that again. Whenever you stand praying, forgive. This is the most, what's the word, uh, forceful way of Jesus saying forgive. The, the verb here is an active imperative, so it's a command. Even the way that this is written in the verse, it's put to the very front of, of, of the verse to, to emphasize, or the front of this thought to emphasize the fact it's like, whenever you are standing and praying, forgive, full stop. When you're thinking about what that person has done, forgive them. There's no qualifiers on this. Forgive them. And if you have anything against anyone, I mean, that even doubles down. It's not forgive them if it's a brother in Christ. Forgive them if, if, uh, if you know, they really didn't mean it. Forgive them if whatever. No, forgive them. If you have anything against anyone. I'm not a lawyer, but I'm not so sh- I think that that's some pretty clear language. I don't think you can get around that, anything with anyone. I think that kind of covers all the basis here. So that your Father also who is in heaven may forgive you your trespasses. Now, this does not mean that in order to merit God's forgiveness, you have to forgive. That would be cheap grace or little grace or no grace. No, what it means is that to be unforgiving reveals that you have failed to understand and accept God's unmerited grace upon yourself. To be unforgiving reveals that you don't understand how much God has forgiven you. Because if I understand that I have been forgiven a insurmountable debt, why in the world should I not be able to forgive somebody that's done, the way that I worded it before, it's not actually a real word, but a surmountable thing that's done, that's something that's like, who cares? Like, if I crash somebody's car and they forgive me of that, why in the world am I not going to forgive somebody who stubs my toe or does something that is completely ridiculous? Because when you understand this is how forgiven you are, everything else pales in comparison. That's why he says if you have anything against anyone and you're standing there praying, forgive. And it's very clear. If you realize that you have not forgiven somebody, do it right away. Just think about all the caveats we like to put on forgiveness. Normally we say, when they ask for forgiveness, I will forgive them, right? I'm just waiting for them to ask for it. Or we say, when they show that they're sorry, we'll forgive them, right? But there's none of that there. There's no asking. There's no showing. There's no caveats. Forgive. Okay, we're going to go on to the second one. And... I'm going to point out just here, it's, this is going to seem like a contradiction, but it's not. God just deals with these tensions in ways that we don't deal with them. Luke 17. Again, another topic, forgiveness. Jesus is talking with his disciples. His, his disciples are trying to figure out everything. This is kind of in a section looking at the temptation of sin because it is a sin to not want to forgive. Here's what he says to his Disciples, this is Luke 17, 3-4. Pay attention to yourselves. If your brother sins, rebuke him. 
And if he repents, forgive him. And if he sins against you seven times in a day and turns to you seven times and says, I repent, you must forgive him. I say this kind of seems like a contradiction because in Mark, he says, if you have anything against your brother, forgive him, full stop, don't have any qualifications. Now he says, if you uh, pay attention to yourself and if your brother sins, go and rebuke him. And when he repents, then you can forgive him. So is it saying that that if someone sins against you, then you can forgive them? Well, I just I want to unpack this. First, I want to notice that Jesus is saying that the responsibility to confront and to forgive are equally laid on both parties. To confront and to forgive are equally laid on both parties. This is, this is where this really kind of the, the rubber meets the road here. And I'll make it personal. Um, if you have something against your spouse, sorry for those who aren't married, but I'm going to use your spouse as, as an example. If you have something against your spouse and she doesn't recognize that it's a sin, you're commanded to forgive her regardless of any conversation. Like, you start that conversation with, I forgive you. At the same time, if your spouse does something wrong to you, you're also commanded to go and rebuke her. Some of you just got a little nervous, I'm sure. You're like, that doesn't go well. Rebuking my wife never goes well because she's smarter than me. Always. All of your wives are smarter than you. I know that. How do you think a rebuke would sound from a already forgiven person compared to a rebuke coming from a bittered person. It'd be a little different, right? If it's a bitter person, it's, you did this to me, and I need you to feel what you did, and I'm going to shove it down your throat until you feel what you did, and I need you to apologize. That's not going to go. Yeah, she might say, I'm so sorry, because you overwhelm her with your anger, frustration, wrath. It's not very loving. It's another thing to go, honey, I need you to understand. That hurt. I know that you didn't mean to do this thing, but you did. Can, Can we just get back on the same page? Like, I forgive you and recognize that, you know, you didn't mean to do it, or even if you did do it, I, you know, I'm. Uh, who, who am I to say that? You know, I'm. I'm a sinner saved by grace too. But can can we not do that? Same type of conversation, right? Very different outcomes. One's accusatory and and driven from pain and anger. One is um, bringing your wife along saying, hey, you probably didn't see this. Or maybe you did see this. Can we talk about this? But the responsibility to confront and to forgive are equally laid on both parties. The first command is what we hear is pay attention to yourself. That's kind of in Matthew 11. Mark, sorry. Mark 11. Too many gospels in my head at the moment. Mark 11. When you're sinning, what was it? There's four. Oh, there's four. Thanks, Mary. Oh, that's good. You're preaching next week. Okay. Uh, just, just think about when you're praying and you have something against somebody, that's you paying attention to what, what's, 
what's my heart and soul saying at the moment? Where, where am I struggling with somebody? And then forgive them. But the second command is, if your brother sins against you, it's, it's you reconciling that relationship. Because let me tell you, the easiest way to bring pain in your life is to shove something deep and never reconcile it. One of the, the discussions we were having this morning out here was, uh, when should we just let something go? Is that the language we use, Tom? What's the, what's the difference between forgiving and just letting it go? Right? Because I know I've been told that often. Just let it go. Doesn't matter. Just let it go. Sometimes that's okay. Sometimes it's like, yeah, whatever. It, it, you know, I, I don't want to say it doesn't warrant, but it's like, if somebody takes my seat at the table, I'm like, whatever. You know, in, in, in light of eternity, I've heard that one a lot. In light of eternity, that doesn't matter. Sometimes, though, we use let it go as an excuse to not actually deal with the hurt and the offense. Sometimes we use it as an excuse because you want to know what's difficult? It, rebuking somebody. Like, this is a tough thing. Because rebuking somebody in love is really hard. Rebuking somebody in anger, that's really fun, isn't it? Wrongly, but really fun. Pour our wrath out on somebody. That's not. No, what Christ calls us to is walking up to a brother or a sister and saying, listen, you did this. We need to talk about this. We need to reconcile this. What can be lost in our conversations about forgiveness and what, what can cause us to even, you know, just uh, lean upon that, well, let's just forgive and forget or let's just kind of bury it down deep, is that forgiveness is for the benefit of the whole body of Christ. I also said this this morning out there. One of the desires that I have from this conversation is to see what would happen in our community if 20 men went home to their wives, sorry for those, their families, and create a relationship and a community where forgiveness is something that happens on a normal basis. Where you work through that tension with each other. It's like, honey, we're going to open up honest conversations and recognize that we're both sinners, that we both have been forgiven an insurmountable debt by the Lord. But that means that in our life together, in this broken world where people disappoint us, and even ourselves, when we disappoint us, we're going to create the context where forgiveness is commonplace. And my question is, what would happen if 20 men go home to their families and they start with their wives and then they start with their kids and then they start with their friends and then they bring that to church? What would a church look like that walks around understanding that we are sinners saved by grace and are willing to offer that forgiveness indiscriminately to each other? And then what would that church look like as it approaches a dark and dying world? I mean, I'm, I, I, I know that like this, I keep referencing the sermon on Sunday, but as much that kingdom living aspect that I've been talking about the last two weeks is just as much part of this as anything else. It's like the kingdom of God is called to affect the kingdom of the world and the kingdom of God is known for forgiveness. So what would it be like when forgiveness is such a normal part where we can immediately forgive and yet at the same time hold each other accountable in grace? What would that church, what would that kingdom look like as it's pushing back against the darkness of this world? This is what Keller says. Forgiveness's purpose is not to humiliate, defeat, or drive out sinners, but to correct and restore them. 
It is often easier to turn a blind eye to sin in the community, to uh, um, the admonition of fellow believers requires a church to function as a body in the costly work of reconciliation. It's easier for me just to stand up here and say, forgive and forget. It's easier for me to stand up here and say, in light of the kingdom, that doesn't matter. Just let it go. But what I know about myself is that often I don't let it go. Because I live in that tension that God does not want us to live in, where there's not true forgiveness because there's not true justice. Mercy actually can't be communicated because we're unwilling to have the hard conversations and say, this is the offense, this is what you're asking me to bear. But what happens with with forgiveness is us saying, I'm willing to bear it, but I need you to understand what I'm bearing. The church, the body of Christ, the community of saints is known for forgiveness. I said it before, forgiveness is the heart of the gospel and it's the heart of, of our community. Forgiveness has been raised to the highest levels. We see this in Matthew 6 yesterday. But we can even see that, again, from the very beginning, I referenced the Old Testament as a picture of forgiveness. We can see that the people of God have always been known for their supernatural type of forgiveness. I've got one more text I want to go to. That's Leviticus 19. You can turn there. This is, you know, again, the nation of Israel's traveling around the wilderness. They're learning what it's like to follow God. They got to the edge of the um, of, of the land of Cana. They went in, they sent spies in and realized, oh dear, we're not going to be able to take over that place because of their lack of trust in God. They spent, the, they spent the next 40 years traveling around, learning what it's like to be the people of God while God simultaneously judged them by slowly killing off that nation. Leviticus 19 says this. It's talking, again, about a section of what does it look like to live in community. The greater section is like loving your neighbor as yourself. It says this in verses 17 through 18. You shall not hate your brother in your heart, but you shall reason frankly with your neighbor, lest you incur sin because of him. You shall not take vengeance or bear a grudge against the sons of your own people, and you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. We can see that, again, there's this tension living in the community of the saints, living with fellow sinners. What's that look like where we're going to hurt each other? We're going to sin against each other. We're going to uh, sometimes unintentionally and even sometimes intentionally hurt each other. So what does it look like? How do we move forward? What's this community supposed to be known for? Well, there's three things that we have been told that we cannot do. And then there's two things that we have been told that we should do. I just want to look at this section, unpack it very briefly. Three things that have been forgiven, that have been forbidden from the Lord. As the community of the saints, as the covenant community of believers, this is how we're supposed to conduct ourselves when somebody has wronged us. Number one, you cannot hate them. Number two, you cannot seek revenge. And number three, you cannot bear a grudge. And I'm saying it that dogmatically because that is as dogmatically as it said as it says here. It's very clear. You, this is verse 17, you shall not hate your brother in your heart. This word here, though, when you look at the Hebrew, means to decrease in status. I think that makes it even, this verse even more, even more difficult. You cannot decrease their status of them in your mind. You cannot think less of them 
in your mind. You cannot hold them in contempt for what they have done. I mean, even think of like Sermon on the Mount. Jesus is saying, well, you say you have not murdered, but I say that when you hate somebody in their heart, you've committed murder. You cannot hate them. This is what resentment and, and bearing a grudge looks like. Where every time you think of them, you go, ah, that person who did this to me. God doesn't hate you. When God looks at you, to go back to the foundation of our forgiveness, when he looks at you with all of the garbage that you've done, and we could have a con nice confession time here and talk about all the garbage we've ever done. I'm not going to do that because I don't want to go there. God doesn't hate you. He doesn't hold that against you. He doesn't say, that's Ryan, who I've forgiven, who's done this to me. No, he goes, that's Ryan, whom I've forgiven, who has his status based upon Christ. So here, we're called in the community of saints as we're giving forgiveness not to hate anyone, not to hold a person who wronged you in contempt or slight regard or even, you know, a struggle with what they have done. Second thing, seek revenge, simply meaning payback for how the person's wronged you. But it also means that we can refrain from seeking Revenge can also mean that we keep them at arm's length, that we refrain from helping them or even being in their life. Do we have this thing of like, well, you know what? I'm the my vengeance is going to be my silence. My vengeance is going to be me um, removing myself from them so that they can't have the joy of me being around. Right? I know you guys are fun to have around, but we can do that. Where we 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 think the way we're going to get back at them is by giving them the silent treatment. And then third, by bearing a grudge. Grudges are fun to bear, are they not? But holding the contempt for that person in our hearts. But forgiveness does not hold the record of our debt in our heart or mind. Forgiveness does not say, there's Ryan, here's what he did to me. It also means, God doesn't say, there's Ryan, here's what I've forgiven him of. It's just, there's Ryan, the person who has complete access to me in Christ. That means is when you look at your wife, at your child, at your boss, at your coworker, at your pastor, whatever it is, because we all have to forgive a variety of people things. It's, there's that person who I have forgiven, and then we are going to move forward. Not holding that in our minds. Not allowing that to you know, the, 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 the chips of the offense to stack up until they've done enough when we are no longer going to forgive them. That we are going to understand that we have forgiven them, that we're going to owe that cost and we're going to walk forward in reconciliation. But just in closing, notice that there's two things that we're called to do. Rebuke them. Have the conversation. Here's what you did. This is the scariest part of this whole discussion as I'm bringing it to you men and having this heart's desire that we can be known as a community that forgives well. What that's going to do, it's going to increase the amount of difficult conversations that we are going to have with each other. It will. If you enact this in your, in, in, in your family with your spouse, whew, do it gently. It's going to increase the amount of difficult conversations that you have with each other. It means that you're going to have to sit down and go, honey, I gotta tell you, this has really been on my heart and not good. Hey, 
child, it's really hard with kids too because that whole like, hey, you're doing this, that hurts me. Because your lying says that you don't trust me. Because your cheating says that you're just look, that you're just looking for the easy way out. Your stealing from us means all. I mean, that's the difficulty here because it's going to increase those conversations, those difficult conversations that again have to be pursued, understanding that they've already been forgiven, and in grace and in love. But the fact that we're not going to walk away from those hard conversations, we're going to walk towards them, understanding that we have been forgiven much. Why in the world can we not forgive? in this little instant. Second thing, love the person who wronged you. That's a hard one. I've had some people do some crappy things to me. And I gotta love them. And I kind of say that with like, I gotta love them. Like, a, that's what God calls me to. But in the community of saints, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. You know, when I sin against somebody and they come to me, where they don't come to me, I most of the time have a list of many excuses for what I did and why I did it that way. Well, you don't know the week I had. You don't know the thing I'm struggling with. You don't know how that thing hit me in my heart. Really easy for me to make excuses. You don't know how I provide for this family, this stress that I'm under. I don't often turn that same level of grace and love around to other people. And my first thought be, what are they going through? That it caused them to do that. That changes things. That person that I love, who I know is reasonable, is gracious, is understanding, wants the best for me, loves me, why are they doing this to me right now? Why did they say that thing? That changes it. Because forgiveness still might need to be had, but instead of approaching your enemy, you're approaching your friend to go, you hurt me, but what's going on? It's interesting in marriages when this, when, when resentment builds up, when grudges build up, when we start hating our spouses, what really goes wrong is we start, is we stop thinking the best about our spouse or the best about our friend or the best about whomever. And we start thinking the worst. And the way you stop that is you start going, wait a second, how would I want to be loved in this situation? And if I'm hurting somebody, I want them to say, stop it. I do. That's why I, I, I will accept those rebukes because often if I'm hurting somebody, it's like, oh, I didn't see that. I didn't see that the thing I was saying hurt you. I didn't see that the action that I was doing was wrong. But when I accept that, I have to realize like, oh, this is coming from a loving place. So justice and love must be combined in us as God's children because it's combined in God. So the same justice and love that we see from our vertical position also must be combined in our horizontal position where we go, okay, this is wrong, but I'm going to love you still. And the amazing grace that we carry in our lungs 
and that we carry through our forgiveness is transformative both in our marriages, in our community, in our lives, and here's what I know, in our world. Because this amazing grace, this costly forgiveness, this is what the world looks at and goes, what? That's not normal. How, how does that happen? And the answer to that is, yeah, because let me tell you about my Savior who's forgiven me so much more than anything you could ever do to me. Okay, that's my prayer. I think that's long enough. Hopefully I've poked all of us in the eyes. I'm, again, this is convicting to me because and it's hard. This means it starts with each and every one of us in each and every one of our homes and each and every one of our hearts. And it starts with when we understand how much we've been forgiven, how that transforms how we forgive others. And when we understand who we are in Christ, I will tell you that that forgiveness and any of these commands that we have of go and rebuke and hold accountable and, and, and you know, reason with them, frankly, all of that stuff does not come out as angry. It comes out as compassion and loving. Hey, I've been forgiven. Let me forgive you. Let me pray for us, and we can go to small groups. Lord, thank you for this, um, this reality that we can hold on to. Lord, I pray that you would create in us hearts that are loving, gracious, forgiving. Lord, I'll just begin to pray that as we take this topic home, and as I trust you're going to be you know, stirring our hearts and minds with this, Lord, prepare our families prepare our church. Lord, use us men to, to change how we go about handling the difficult things in life. Lord, give us grace and boldness and wisdom in how to walk forward. Just be with us now as we're in small groups. Just give us um, good conversations. Use this time to build each other up. In your son's name, amen.